Hello and welcome to the AdNote podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is the recording from our December 2021 meeting, Go for .NET Developers, with Sahan Sarasinga. Please note that some additional editing was done to the recording due to technical issues on the night. And now, over to the presentation. Cool. Uh, thanks everyone for joining uh, with us tonight. Um, so this is a bit of a different talk than our usual .NET related uh, ones. Uh, so today I'll be talking about like you know how you can uh, yeah use Go uh, in your like you know new projects or even in your you know personal projects and things like that. Um, so the agenda is like you know we will initially like talk about you know what is Go and why you should care about Go and the tooling and some basic language constructs uh, as well as unit testing, building like a HTTP web service as well as uh, doing a multi-architecture deployment uh, with Go. Yeah. Cool, so I'm Sahan Singh. I work at GitHub as a software engineer and my Twitter handle is that and my blog is sahanserving.dev. Um, so uh, all, all the code samples that uh, you're gonna be seeing here uh, will be on that, uh, you can like go there from, uh, by scanning that QR code. And if not, you can go to like github.com slash sahansera slash adnac-go. A little disclaimer, uh, this is not to say like one language is superior to another uh, because you know every language has their own you know ups and downs. Uh, these are just tools, uh, not solutions, and uh, I'm not a Go expert as well. I re recently transitioned from .NET to Go uh, because you know such you know such reasons, and uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's like a plenty of information that you can uh, search for uh, if you are you know planning to step into the Go world. Okay, so what is Go? Uh, it was initially developed by Google back in 2009, and it was released to the public in 2011. It's a strongly typed, compiled, uh, garbage collected language, uh, just like C Sharp. And the current version is 1.17, which is which is what we are going to be using today. And uh, there'll be a new release coming up in early 2022. Uh, that is 1.18. Yeah, this is gonna be a bit hard. Um, so, Go was initially uh, created by these three uh, legends in the computer science industry. Uh, so, as you can see, like people like Ken Thompson, they have like deep roots in Unix and C, like uh, you know, ecosystems. So, if you are already working in C, C++ kind of you know ecosystems, uh, then you will find a lot of similarities uh, in Go as well. So the reason uh, why Go was built is uh, for these four specific reasons. Uh, one was like speed of execution, speed of compilation, uh, dependency management, and also Go is really uh, uh, superb in when it comes to like its concurrency model and optimizations because Google uh, was hitting some roadblocks with their current code base. Like, you know, they had a humongous uh, code base with C and C++ and it was taking a lot of time. Uh, to compile that, and they wanted to come up with a new language um, to 
such that they can compile it really fast and it can be executed fast as well with a lot of optimizations. So Go's philosophy is to you know, keep everything simple. Um, you know, one good comparison that we can see in C Sharp, we have like, you know, 75, 73 odd uh, reserved keywords and they are like, you know, 40 something, you know, contextual keywords as well. Um, so if you combine those together, you get around about 100 or even more than that. And, but in Go, you have like only 25 keywords, which is like really simple, but you know, not to say like one is better than another, just that, you know, keep in mind, certain things come with trade-offs because C Sharp is really uh, shines when it comes to like it's syntactic sugar. So sometimes you would find Go code to be like real terse and verbose sometimes, but in like very uh, rare occasions. Uh, Go is really opinionated. Uh, one example is, uh, you know, uh, what I have shown here. So I have like one variable called x equals one. Uh, in C Sharp, if you are not using that variable, it would just be like a warning. But in Go's world, it is a compile error. So you won't be able to even compile your code. So they have like really opinionated stuff uh, in Go, just to keep everything consistent. And also, you know, the wars between tabs and spaces, um, Go doesn't care about that. So whatever you code in, uh, if you're using tabs or spaces, um, even before it hits the compiler, it just goes through the Go formatter and then it will uh, format your code accordingly. Uh, so everybody else in the team would get a consistent experience. Cool. Uh, so Go doesn't have the concept of classes, but they do have like structures, like structs, uh, just as in C Sharp, but uh, yeah, I haven't used that much in C Sharp. Uh, that means like there's no inheritance hierarchy. Uh, Go is like really driven upon the composition concept. And there's no like try catch exception handling and stuff, but there are like errors, but they are just caught by you know just using if else, just simple. Uh, and there's no generics, unfortunately yet. Uh, there'll be like a new release coming up. Uh, there was like a debate between whether to add generics to the code base or not, uh, and then uh, they went ahead with that. And uh, also one of the main things that I miss uh, in Go is link um, in comes to C sharp because link is awesome but uh, you don't have that because, you know, Go being opinionated, uh, their point is like, you know, by having like a generic framework to manipulate your objects and such, uh, it can have certain, you know, impact on your uh, performance of your code base. So that's the reason why they don't have uh, something like that. So you have to kind of roll uh, out on your own uh, if you are to do something like that. So keep that in mind. Uh, no semicolons to end lines. But we will see uh, when we go into the demos and things like that. So why should you care about Go uh, in the first place? So in our case, uh, in my team especially, we have software engineers, network engineers, site reliability engineers, uh, SecOps engineers, and uh, these people, like, you know, when, when they come together, they have, like, uh, so many opinions about things. And, uh, you know, they, they are coming from, like, different backgrounds, like, you know, Python could be Ruby or even bash scripting. And the problem was, how can we define or you know, find the intersection of all these things and uh, choose a language in order to you know, build a service or a you know, system? And the main pain points for us, at least, was uh, you know, not having like a strongly typed system in other languages, uh, like the scripting languages, like the interpreted ones. Um, 
and also the burden of um, you know maintaining the runtimes and installing dependencies and things like that. So we really wanted something you know just build it, compile it, and deploy it, and you know don't worry about the dependencies. So Go is really good for that. Um, and some other cool bits about Go is uh, exactly what I mentioned right now because when you compile a Go code, everything just gets baked into the binary, and you can just deploy anywhere you want. Uh, I mean there will be like some trade-offs, uh, like you know if you are dependent on certain you know. Uh, OS specific libraries or things like that. Maybe uh, you would have to worry about that. But having said that, you don't have to install anything extra because uh, whatever you are going to be using in your code base will be baked into the binary itself. Uh, and also, uh, if you want like learn more about like you know go deeper uh, into Docker or traffic Kubernetes like cloud, cloud native uh, application stacks, then uh, you know these are built uh, using Go. And uh, if we have time, we will go through uh, like Docker's source code and see uh, whether we can apply the things that we learn here. Yeah, so Go is really popular for its tooling. So in order to um, you know get up and running, all you have to do is just go to go.dev and uh, download the SDK. Depending on your, you know, whether you are on Linux, Mac, or Windows, just uh, you know, install the SDK on your machine, and then it will set up like the tooling that you need to uh, start, um, you know, working on Go. And yeah, so once you have the SDK running, uh, Go has a really awesome CLI, and you can just use, you know, Go Run to run your code, Go Build to, you know, build the binary package out of your source code, and Go Get is like, you know, it's like an npm. Uh, version of Go where you can you know download packages, let's say like NuGet. But the difference is Go doesn't work with binaries and such because it downloads a source code um, uh, into a machine, uh, just like you know you are working with you know JavaScript or TypeScript kind of environment. And Go also has a really awesome tool called GoWet. Uh, so once you run that on your code base, it finds uh, you know certain issues with your code and things like that. And Go FMT, which I talked about earlier, like it formats your entire source code, or like the code base, and uh, before uh, uh, you, you know, commit it to your repository. And in terms of IDs, I personally like using uh, Visual Studio Code because it has like really good support for uh, Go development. And all you have to do is just install that uh, Go plugin, and then uh, you're good to go. Uh, people use uh, Go, GoLand, uh, which is like uh, ID from JetBrains, and if you are, you know, fan of Vim, you can, you know, use that as well. So I have talked about the tooling and the why, the what about Go. So let's have a look at the code now. Cool. So yeah. <laughs> so this is a very you know, basic um, program. So in the C-sharp world, we have like the namespace class and the main method, and uh, we are just, you know, printing something onto the standard out. Uh, gonna say hello world. And in Go's world, we have packages. So everything uh, in your code can be, you know, packaged up into different packages. Um, this, uh, so in every code base, there has to be like one entry point, which is going to be like, you know, always going to be main. And uh, there's this main method. It has to be there in order to, you know, run something. And uh, FMT, it is like a standard library package. 
uh, that is to say like, you know, something like console.writeLN where you can use uh, that to like format your standard input and output. So that's pretty much what it does. It's pretty simple. Um, but with .NET 6 and I think C Sharp 10, you can actually delete everything else that you see in there, like namespace, class, even the main method, I think. You can just have console.writeLN. It will just run as a script. But in Go's world, you at least need to have the package main as well as uh, the function main. Uh, we will talk about the semantics of the code a little bit later. Uh, so I'm going to cover like basic language constructs of Go. Uh, pardon all the you know interruptions. Uh, try my best to uh, keep the presentation running. Uh, okay, so let's switch back to Visual Studio Code. Yeah, it's gonna be a bit hard. So yeah, live coding time. It's already a fire. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> no surprise there. Uh, just yeah. Is this clear enough for you all? All good, right? Yeah. So, yeah, seems to be working. <laughs> uh, thanks for your patience. I'll uh, yeah, zoom this in a little bit as well. Okay. Cool. All right. So, we have our first, uh, you know, Go versus C sharp kind of code. Actually, the one on the right hand side is also Go. So, I'll just uh, add the program.cs. Um, yeah. So, pretty much, you know, pretty simple. I'll just. Um, here, try to run the code. Yeah. So as I said, like if you want to run uh, like a Go script, you can just say like you know go run main dot go like the script. Uh, we will talk about like modules and all that kind of stuff later, um, so that you don't have to always say like go run uh, main dot go. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, like if you just delete everything in here, just uh, yeah, save that. You know, you can have like, you know, package main, but you know, it doesn't do anything. And then uh, main method is like, you know, func main, and uh, you know, this is perfectly valid to have it like that. And uh, you know, if you want to show something uh, to the console, uh, this is the, you know, the de facto way to do that, like the println and then uh, hello go, uh, let's say go. Cool, so as you can see, like it says undeclared name because we haven't added the import and when you save your program, it will automatically add that for you. Um, and also, let's say we delete uh, the FMT line and try to save, it will, it won't allow you to like keep those things hanging around. It will just delete that from the source code. So that's why how it tries to, you know, do, do these optimizations and things like that. Uh, so it was a bit weird uh, when I first started because, you know, keep, stuff keep on changing when you save your program, but uh, you know, for a good reason. Um, yeah, that's actually the first program uh, that we are going to see today. And as I mentioned earlier, like you can have, like with the new C Sharp 10 and .NET 6, you can just delete everything else, like all the boilerplate code, and just even have uh, console.writeLN, hello world as well. So yeah, plus one to C Sharp, I guess. Uh, just add this back. Um, so yeah, let's talk about variables and uh, you know how you can relate that stuff to C sharp. Cool. So that's this one. Cool. So the way Go defines their variables is like this var keyword, and then comes the name of the variable, 
and the type comes after that. Whereas in normal, you know, Java C sharp, C sharp kind of language, you would say like, you know, int uh, the name equals whatever the value. But in here, it's the other way around. But we will see how we can kind of relate that to uh, the C sharp world as well. So pretty simple. Like they have the basic, you know, uh, the types uh, in in 32, 64, and uh, also float 32, float 64 for double uh, strings and all that kind of stuff. The reason why I had to do this, uh, I think you can guess it by now. If I just delete this, it will say like all oh, these are compiled errors now. And uh, yeah, so it won't let me compile the application. And also you can do like, uh, you know, declare multiple variables uh, by using, let's call that down a little bit. Uh, with this uh, notation, like, you know, var and then open brackets and then uh, have all your, you know, the names and the types and, you know, the values and things like that. So even if you do this, like, let's say we delete this, uh, you know, have stuff like that and then uh, hit save. See that? So it will automatically format your code for you. Um, so this is, I think, the closest we can get to uh, in terms of, like, connecting with C Sharp and uh, Go kind of code. So this is going to be like perfectly valid C sharp code, right? Like uh, with the semicolon, uh, this line. So Go doesn't have the concept of, I mean, it has, but it doesn't use uh, semicolons to, you know, terminate lines because Go compiler has, has the uh, smarts or the optimizations in order to figure that out. And it will actually add that before it compiles, like when it, uh, you know, creates, it, uh, creates the abstract, abstract syntax tree out of your program. So you don't have to do that. The compiler will uh, figure that out for you. So if you save this, uh, it will just delete the semicolon. And uh, yeah, it has type inferencing. Um, you know, you don't always have to use like you know the you know name of the type and all that kind of stuff. So you can uh, use type inferencing if you feel like that. And there's even a shorter version. Uh, you don't have to use the var keyword. Um, with the shorter version, you can say like you know the colon equals and then uh, you know assign whatever the value. So it will use both type inferencing as well as uh, some smarts to figure those things out. Uh, so those are like the variables uh, side of things, and you can also do like like you know in inline initializations as well. Uh, you know, like just like you know unpacking in JavaScript TypeScript world. Uh, yeah, and also like constants. Pretty much same thing, just the difference is like, you know, you define it as const and then uh, you can do all the things that we did earlier as well, except you, you can't change the value once you've defined it, so obviously. So, so far, so good. If you have any questions, good. Uh, so Go actually didn't have a concept of a module, so we are gonna be talking about that. So as I showed you earlier, like you have to say like go run main.go, but the problem is when your code base grows uh, bigger, uh, you have to like, you know, split it into several smaller modules and things like that. So Go has this concept of modules in order to kind of mitigate that. Uh, there'll be a new concept called workspaces, I think, uh, or even optimizations for workspaces coming up. Because in, you know, previous times, uh, what you had to do was uh, you your project always have to be under like the Go path. So what I'm telling you here is when you install Go, uh, let's say Go env, Go path, so it has to be under this folder. Uh, and this, that was like a weird convention that they had, but now with the, you know, 
the introduction of the modules. Uh, you don't have to do that. So that's a good thing. So how to do that? Let's say, uh, yeah, so in this one, I'm using like a third party library to show you guys like how you can, you know, uh, add a third party library and uh, how you can use that as well. So let's say we delete the go mod and the sum files. That's clear enough. Yeah, cool. Go into project. So let's save this. So now it says like no required module provides package, uh, whatever the github.com slash common, whatever this package that I'm using at the moment, it can't find that. So in order to do that, you have to do like a go get and uh, you know, just store that under my you know username. So copy that, you know, just like, you know, in installing your NPM packages and things like that. Uh, the only difference is it actually pulls down the source code of the library that you are using and uh, it actually lives in your, like the Go path. Um, yeah, so let's try to run that. Yeah, it still says it can't find the module. So that's why uh, they had to introduce like the module because my project is not actually under that, you know, the, the set path that they had initially under the Go, Go path, uh, which I showed you earlier. So in order to do that, you just have to say like Go mod uh, in it, and then you can give it like a name. Uh, let's say Nag Go. Do that, and as you can see, like it created this uh, module for us. So you can use this module convention uh, whenever you introduce like new modules to your code. Um, this is pretty much a sim similar thing what uh, code bases like Docker Kubernetes use as well, and uh, it has also like the Go version. So if you want to like you know upgrade the Go version, all you have to do is like just you know change that and uh, the compiler will figure it out. So now if we do a go get, yeah, see that? So it added that, you know, package, like a require, with a require statement, and then says like the, you know, version and all that kind of stuff. And it also creates like this checksum uh, file, uh, so that, you know, it knows like every time it pulls. Uh, it's like the package.lock kind of file uh, in JavaScript and TypeScript world. Uh, you, pull it, you are pulling the you know, right packages every time when you compile this application. So now if you try to run go run, actually let's try go run dot. Yeah, here you go. So now we don't have to specify like, you know, go run main.go because now we have the modules in place. Uh, it knows, you know, where to find the main uh, module and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's how you can use modules, but you know, modules is in itself, it's a big concept. Uh, you know, you can go really deep into that, but I'm gonna, you know, leave things there uh, so that you have a basic understanding of that. So that's how you can use like, you know, these third party packages and libraries. So when it comes to third party packages, I have to actually stress this point. Uh, in the Go world, people kind of frown upon you if you like really heavily uh, rely on third-party libraries because you can pretty much do everything with the standard library packages uh, because you know you can do like HTTP calls uh, like networking uh, if you want to do templating um, uh, testing unit testing um, yeah you can like you know for accessing files and all that kind of stuff so you can do pretty much everything uh, with the standard library unless you have a like really good reason like this one uh, because I wanted to have some fun with ASCII art I just you know 
uh, grab the package from a third party library. So yeah, uh, that's kind of a, another point uh, that's there in the Go world. Um, yeah, and let's talk about slicers. So when it comes to arrays and things like that, yeah, it's very similar to C sharp. You know, you just uh, uh, in arrays like they are fixed length, so you can you know define a length here and then the type of the array and then the values and you, know, you can initialize them like that. If not, you can you know just initialize the empty array and then later on uh, you know add the values as well. So that's that. So those are called like you know normal arrays, but they have this concept of slices, uh, which are like you know dynamic uh, arrays in uh, you know other languages where you can say like you know we are not defining like a fixed length and uh, we can have like as many elements that as we want um, in that array. So pretty basic stuff. I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Uh, and loops, it's a very interesting topic. So Go only has one type of loops, that is the for loop. So there's no do while, uh, while loop and you know other kind of other loops because you can pretty much do everything with the for loop. So they just only have like one loop type. So that's what I have shown here, like, you know, your normal for loop here. Uh, you can use that to, you know, traverse a list or whatever. And then while loop like this, you know, initialize it like i equals one, and then, you know, i is less than 10, and then you know, do something and i plus plus kind of thing. So pretty much the same thing. This is like an infinite loop, but, you know, uh, since we have condition here, uh, it becomes a, like a while, normal while loop. So, yeah. It was kind of surprising, but uh, yeah, it's very opinionated. Again, it's a very recurring theme uh, in Go. Uh, also, there's like an enhanced uh, for loop as well. Uh, you can use the range keyword, um, and you can have like, you know, if you have like a set of numbers or you want to iterate through a hash map or you know, something like that, then uh, it will give you the current index and the current value that you are traversing through. So, you know, you can just use that rather than, you know, using like a traditional you know, i equals zero, i is less than 10, and i plus plus kind of a uh, for loop. So yeah, those are the kind of like, you know, uh, three main different loops. Um, but yeah, just bear in mind there's only one loop, that's the for loop, that's it. So conditionals, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing like C sharp, like if, else if, yeah, not any weird syntax like elif or something like that, so it's good. Uh, and if you try to like you know do stuff like this, uh, the compiler would just delete that when you save that. So uh, yeah, that's that. And then I think if you have like multiple uh, conditions, I think it will keep them. Uh, let's see. I don't know if that is going to work. Yeah, there you go. So when I save that, it just it just kept that it uh, kept uh, like that. So the compiler has the smarts to know like you know okay it's okay to keep this as is. If not, it will just, you know, go ahead and delete the uh, extra brackets. Um, uh, yeah, so if else, the conditions are pretty much same, like, you know, C-sharp world and switch, switch case is also same, uh, like the C-sharp world as well. So switch and then whatever the value you want to uh, switch on and the cases and the default cases and things like that. Cool. Um, a function, so this is a very interesting topic in Go, so when it comes to languages like C Sharp, Java, I mean, they're heavily like object-oriented, I would say. Go is more like a middle ground between object-oriented and being like a purely functional programming language. Uh, so functions act 
like a centerpiece uh, in, in the Golang, image, Golang world. So for example, uh, the way to define like a function is using this func keyword and then the name of the function and then comes the, you know, the brackets and the parameters and things like that. And uh, after that, if you want to return something, then comes the, you know, type of the, you know, the return type uh, comes after that. So that's kind of a uh, thing that, that we actually saw that uh, in, in the in the way we define like a variable as well, like in, in C-sharp world, we have like, you know, string whatever and the name of the function. So it's kind of kind of reversed in here. Cool. So it's a pretty basic thing in here. So function get greeting and then we return like a string out of that. And then that's why we have it in here. And the next one is pretty interesting because if you have a look, we have function sum and average. We take in like two parameters called A and B. Uh, you can see that. Yeah, so what it does is just calculate the sum and the average. So Go can do like, you know, multiple return values uh, out of functions. Um, something similar to tuples or tuples, but I think there's a limit to that, right? Like in C-sharp world, the number of elements that you can return. Uh, so, but in here, you can have as many as you want. So, like, you know, I don't know, string, uh, yeah. And you would also find that it is a common pattern in Go, like to return like an error as well. So that's what I told you earlier. There's no like a try catch, but there's a concept of error. Uh, it's an interface. And uh, if something happens, you can just throw, like not throw, I shouldn't say that, like return an error object out of that. So whenever, whoever is, calling that function has to handle that with a else. Uh, so yeah, there are like some patterns to kind of, uh, you know, handle that, but uh, that's how even like major frameworks like Kubernetes and Docker even does um, return an error out of the function. So uh, that's one thing, let's delete this. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty basic. Uh, just only thing to remember here is like, you know, you can return multiple values from function as well. Cool. And the other one is like pointers. Um, C sharp has pointers, but yeah, I haven't used anybody else use pointers in C sharp in your day to day code. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even that was surprising to me when I was looking around like C sharp actually has pointers, but yeah, neither have I. Like I haven't used pointers uh, in C sharp, but uh, in Go, it's a, it's a pretty big thing. I, even though it's garbage collected, uh, you can still, uh, you know, in certain cases you have to use pointers because C, uh, sorry, in Go, um, you can either pass by value or pass by reference, however you want it. So that's why they have introduced this. Um, so you are not kind of stuck to a certain thing. And for sometimes you have to, you know, pass an object into a function and then mutate that. Uh, something like a JSON non-marshalling or something like th that's how they have built that. Um, uh, rather than just polluting like a, you know, uh, like return statements and all that kind of stuff. So you can just, you know, pass a pointer to an object and then whatever the function does work on that. And then whoever the caller is, they will have the updated object out of that because they are working on the same memory pointer. So how you work, how you can work on pointers is like, you know, let's say for example, we have var x uh, equals five and uh, Okay, we can just run this uh, 
for uh, if you are not familiar with pointers and things like that. So I just grab that. Yeah. Cool. So from first one, uh, it says like you know. Initially, we had this value, right? Like in X. Now we want to get the memory address of X. So for that, in C, C++ kind of you know notation, you have the ampersand. Uh, it's called the dereference or something. Uh, so you can have access to the memory address instead of the value. So that's what we see in here, like this hex, uh, uh, yeah, hex value in here. Uh, the value is five. It's fine. And if you want to store the pointer, you what you can do is get x and you know use the dereferencer to get uh, the memory address and then store that memory address. Uh, in a pointer with this notation, like uh, by using a star. So, yeah, if you're not familiar with pointers, don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, call that out because I have seen in Go code, like, you know, they heavily use pointers uh, a lot of the time. Um, is there anything confusing so far? Oh, uh, it's all clear. Good. Um, yeah, that's about pointers and as I mentioned earlier, there's no concept of classes, uh, but we have structs. Uh, in C sharp also we have structs, uh, like we can have like, you know, parameters uh, there, uh, like instance variables and things like that. So struct is more like a lightweight container compared to a class, you don't have like instance methods. Um, uh, all you have is like, you know, just like a POCO, like a uh, plain old C sharp object, Without the methods, load getters and setters and things like that. So uh, that's that's a struct, and uh, I have defined like a person struct over here, like with the type keyword, um, type person struct, and then you know whatever the name, age, and things like that. So I'll just show you, like you know, if you want to have like an address, uh, it's going to be like a struct. Yeah, um, I don't know, straight. Uh, something like that, and uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like you know, Go heavily relies on composition as well. Uh, so you can have like you know uh, an address here, like this. So yeah, so that's how you can you know compose different objects out of structs. But the problem is, how can we define behaviors with a struct? So they have this concept of I'll just delete this for now. Uh, concept of uh, like binding a method to an object, so to a struct. So for example, let's say we wanted to add like a method um, that can work on these kind of objects. Uh, let's say we just, you know, define, uh, I don't know, get name or something. And return type is going to be string. Cool. But the problem is how does it know which one to bind to? So they have a syntax uh, called uh, pointer receiver. So what it does is when you say something like this, now it gets, you know, uh, bound to uh, all types of like, sorry, uh, types of, uh, sorry, op not objects, but structs that are instances of structs uh, uh, will have a new method called, uh, a function called get name. So say for example, uh, return p now because we have a reference to p now uh, we can say like you know return p dot name 
and you know you can just say you know get name so something that we didn't have so that's how you define like you know behaviors or add behaviors to structs so yeah that's actually like the you know the basic understanding of structs and uh, there's no new keyword uh, so the way you create like a new object is like you know just the name of the type and then uh, these brackets and i think if you can if you want uh, you can also initialize uh, stuff in here for example uh, song or something like that so yeah you can define stuff like that so this is like a, also like a common thing uh, that i have seen in like large code bases as well um yeah that's actually about structs uh, nothing nothing that interesting but uh, yeah it's a different way of doing kind of the same thing but uh, yeah key takeaways is like you know there's no classes no inheritance uh, hierarchies and things so you have to rely on composition object uh, like struct composition and uh, trucks are really right lightweight so you don't have to carry around a whole bunch of behaviors with it uh, all you have to do is like you know define like a uh, pointer receiver uh, to a struct by defining uh, it like this so during the compile time it gets you know added or like you know bound uh, to that struct so yeah that's how you can you know add behaviors to structs and things like that so that's what i wanted to show you there and uh, yeah that's actually ends up a whole bunch of you know concepts uh, when it comes to go uh, so in terms of like the syntax uh, i don't know what you felt about that like was it like really hard to follow uh, was it kind of easy to you know You know, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And so, like, if I have a get name in a library, it's going to yeah. package that I'm going down. That's right. And if I have a get name attached to, I'm assuming there's some sense of yeah. structs. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the way they distinguish that is like with the package name. So, let's say you have like a, you know, struct person in package A and struct person also in package B. So, when you do that, uh, it will say there'll be a conflict and then you can define like an alias to that particular import saying like you know uh, pa for the one that comes from a pb for the one that comes from that and uh, unless the compiler kind of uh, tells you to do but most like most of the time on the code basis that i have worked on you don't necessarily need to do that i have very rarely seen that happening uh, because as long as your you know the naming is consistent and unique it can figure that out for you only thing is if you have those kind of like you know same names in different packages it would be confusing for the programmer to kind of figure that out so that's why they have something called type aliases so you can just say like type pa equals uh, whatever the you know model dot uh, person and then uh, type pb equals uh, something else dot person so then you can use that pb reference as a type in your code as well so yep uh, 
Ex absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely like you don't, uh, yeah, you don't have to worry about like the uh, what's it called in C plus plus destructors, destructors. Uh, yeah, yeah. So in C plus plus you have destructors, you have to define that, and then you have to say like you know this can be, uh, you know, emptied or something like that yeah. Yeah, in C plus plus world, but you don't have to do that in C sharp because uh, there's like ARC like automatic reference counting yeah. going on. Uh, during the, actually it happens uh, during the compile time. Uh, it knows exactly these things are going to be used even before it uh, goes into the runtime. So it's pretty smart in that. Because uh, that actually strings up another point. I haven't seen like a DI framework or something like that. So there's no dependency injection like as you would normally see in the .NET world. Uh, the way they do that is like normally we have the constructor injection, right? Like uh, the default DI. Uh, in .NET world, but in here you don't get that uh, because people are used to do things with you know composing structs or using interfaces and then passing them as you know uh, parameter injection. So that's how they kind of deal with that. But there's a library for DI uh, written by Google that is actually like a compile time DI. So you can do stuff like that uh, in Go. Because the compiler is like really like powerful in Go. It can like do a whole bunch of things uh, during the compile time. Because everything gets baked into the single binary, right? So they have to do such kind of things in order to keep the performance up. So yeah. Uh, any other questions? I hope I answered your yeah. question. Okay. Sorry, what, what is the question? Uh, can you repeat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you have your functions as you know, as you would normally have with your instance. Uh, sorry, uh, like the methods of the object. So that's how you can add behaviors to structs. So uh, yeah, if you have time, we can go through like you know the Docker code base, and I, I can see, show you these uh, kind of concepts how they use that. Uh, cool. So that those are like the main uh, stuff that I wanted to cover with you. Uh, and uh, let's jump back into the presentation. Yep, we have already seen the file and unit testing. So um, as I mentioned earlier, like the Go. Standard library has a lot of features uh, baked into that, like you know, as I mentioned, uh, like making HTTP calls, testing, uh, templating, accessing file systems, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, testing is also part of that standard library package, which is called package testing. And there's like a go CLI command that you can use, go test, and there's a convention for this. So I'll, I'll show that to you uh, as well, and then you can do like you know benchmarks with the dash bench or you can get like the coverage of unit tests as well. And uh, there's no assertions library, and that was a surprising thing for me, uh, because normally in you know, .NET Java world, we have something to do assertions, uh, like you know, libraries and things like that, but uh, it is also another thing that's frowned upon. Uh, unless you have a really, really good reason to use the assertions library in your Go code. I haven't seen people using uh, assertions libraries in uh, Go code. I'll show you how, how they do that. Um, so let's jump back into the code. 
Yeah. I'm not sure if this, uh, scroll that up a little bit. So yeah, in my case, I have like this main.go script and the convention here is to, whatever the file name that you have, uh, your test would go under this file, which is main underscore test.go. So that's how the compiler knows, right, uh, this file has tests and you know these are the tests. And the thing about that is the compiler, when we compile the application, the compiler doesn't inject those test files into your binary as well. So that's why they have this convention going on. Um, so I'll just quickly go through the code in here. So we have function main, we are just you know adding two numbers. Uh, and uh, in the function we have like you know x and y, just add it, return it, that's it. So we just you know print that out of the standard out. So in order to test this, we import the testing package. And it has this T uh, struct, which gets injected uh, when you run, like, you know, go test. I'll, I'll show that um, to you as well while I'm uh, talking. So change that, go test. Uh, yeah, let's try this. Yeah, so whenever the test runner runs, it injects this object into your test so that you can actually control uh, how it is run. For example, in my case, if the expected value is not what we want, then you can, you know, just emit a message saying, you know, this is what we want, but this is what we got. So this is like a very, I uh, wouldn't say basic, but this is the way that they do uh, kind of assertions. So it's pretty simple. You just define X and Y, and uh, this is what we want, to, and got is whatever the value that's written from that function. And then uh, we check whether it is equal or not. And then uh, if it is not, then uh, just, yeah, uh, you just break out of that. So let's say, for example, if you change that to three, yeah, now it failed. Uh, so if you have structs and things like that, it can become a bit cumbersome because you would have to then figure out, you know, what kind of attributes that you want to check uh, in each of those structs because we had those kind of situations. Uh, you know, this is what we are going to expect, but this is what the, uh, you know, the method return, and then you kind of have to loop through the objects and to see whether they are matching. So those kind of things are there. Uh, but there are like, you know, plenty of assertions libraries if you want. Uh, the, the thing about this is like the, it's not enforced by why they are using this is like, you know, to have like a consistent experience across the board. Uh, even if you, you know, go to like, you know, large projects and things like that, uh, they use similar kind of pattern. So you wouldn't have to learn a new library in order to, you know, uh, do certain stuff with Go. So that's how it works, uh, like, you know, uh, from a high level view. And you also get, um, like, you know, if you want to do like a setup, tear down kind of a thing between the tests, you can do like, you know, it is also, something that gets created under the hood, like test main. And then, uh, yeah, you can do, you know, whatever you want in here. And then I think you can get a, yeah, object in here. And uh, yeah, I can't remember the, like the exact, um, what's it called, like the syntax for that. But uh, yeah, you can do like your setup code 
and they run the test and then you can do the teardown code as well. Like for example, if you are doing like a, you know, I don't know, uh, getting values from a database or whatever, you know, you can do, you know, just close the database connection and things like that. So uh, yeah, so that utility function is also there. It's not normally apparent uh, unless you look for it, for, for it. but uh, yeah, this is how you would normally do like unit testing uh, in Go. Oh yeah, yeah, the compiler knows that. So for example, uh, let's say you, you had a different uh, file called xyz.go and the test for that file would be xyz underscore test.go. So the compiler would know, right, these are the, uh, this is the, you know, the test file and these are the, you know, the source code to test against. So that's a convention that they use. Lots of, uh, opinions uh, in this language. <laughs> so yeah, it might feel a little bit weird uh, when you actually first look at it. Even I felt the same um, coming from C-sharp uh, because you have a lot of freedom in such languages. But uh, I mean, yeah, they all, like both have you know their own trade-offs. But the good thing that we have seen as a team, like when we onboard a new person, uh, they don't have to learn like new things because, you know, it is, you know, like the de facto way to do things in Go. So everybody knows how to do things, uh, you know, because it is consistent. So that's a good thing because I can remember like in .NET, like there's BDD and even for BDD, like you have so many libraries and uh, especially when you are in consulting business, uh, you would see like a whole bunch of like code people have written, like, you know, using different, different libraries and uh, you have to, go through those code and learn those libraries and things like that, it's kind of becomes horrible, but uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So that's the unit testing bit. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's a ligature from VS Code. That's my font, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's gonna be like this. Uh, just uh, see if I can. Uh, yeah. yeah, just this without the space because it is going to convert that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, any questions on this one? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So, thing with structs is, you know, those are just going to be like, you know, some place in the memory, right? So, if you try to compare the pointers, it's always going to be false because they are two different things. Uh, we had a similar situation like that. We had a like a huge struct that we want to wanted to you know compare, so we had to kind of roll out town like a you know loop to go through uh, the attributes of the struct and then check uh, the uh, value that we got and the value that we expected. So yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, pointers are really safe uh, in Go. And there's like lots of uh, compile time optimizations to uh, you know tackle such things. Uh, something that I haven't talked and got not going to be talking about in this presentation is Go routines. It is like a super awesome concept. You will see how easy it is to you do like you know uh, multi-threaded applications. But uh, I don't have time for that. But uh, yeah, that is actually uh, like a well-known thing in the Go world. That's why people actually use Go uh, because of Go routines. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is like a whole new presentation. If you 
guys want me to do a presentation, maybe some other time I'll do that. If not, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Let me go back to the presentation. Uh, let's see what else we have got in here. Yeah, the project structure. So .NET has this, you know, the solution file and the CS project files and all that kind of stuff. When you scaffold a new .NET application, like with .NET CLI, .NET CLI with, you know, .NET new, CLI, minimal, web API, whatever, uh, it's gonna spit out like a structure uh, for your project, right? Uh, you know, it expects that to be there. Uh, with Go, it's not enforced. I mean, as I have mentioned here at the bottom, like if you're starting out, this is probably an overkill. So don't even worry about this. But if you are, you know, reading uh, code uh, for like, you know, Docker and Kubernetes, if you want to learn, learn uh, such technologies, this is the kind of pattern that they use, like the CMD, which is going to be like the entry points of the application. Why I say entry points is like sometimes you would have like a server instance, like, you know, main.go for that. And you would be utilizing the same packages, but you would have like a CLI application for the same application. So there'll be like, you know, two entry points. So you have to kind of target which one you are going to compile during the compile time. So that's where normally things like, you know, the CLI, the servers, whatever the entry points of the application would normally go into. That's a CMD. And we will have a look at that, the Docker code. Uh, the way that the packages work in Go is as you saw earlier, like it basically downloads the entire source code. So if you don't want people to download uh, certain things into their application, then you can put that into the internal folder. And uh, the Go compiler knows that, uh, that, uh, you know, it shouldn't uh, import these things into their, you know, machines. So private application and library code goes into the internal folder. And whatever else that you have, uh, like the, you know, the, your library code, and the module code and things like that goes under the package uh, folder uh, that is visible to others. And uh, if you have some, you know, dependencies and, you know, things like that, let's say, you know, uh, things you don't want to, like, I don't know, maybe download during the CI time or something like that, you know, you can have those things in the vendor uh, folder as well. But yeah, I have seen people doing that, but nowadays people don't use that because uh, there's a support for like, private repositories in Go as well, because we heavily rely on private repositories uh, because of, you know, uh, the security and things like that. So a lot of the code that we are working on are in, you know, GitHub's internal repositories. So you can enable that uh, within Go's tooling, and then it knows during even in the CI time, uh, once you have the credentials in, in place, uh, it will, you know, download from your private repos uh, once you have access, uh, once the CI has access. So uh, when you do like a go get on your machine, how it works under the hood is it uses your git credentials to, uh, you know, pull the packages in. So whatever you have access to, it will use that. In CI environment, you can have like a service account uh, uh, to access private repositories. So that's what we have done. Um, and then uh, there's like a flag that you have to enable like go private equals one and then you can, you know, define uh, Stuff like that. So in a in a GitHub repository, this would be like you know those can be sourced from like the secrets of the repository. So you don't have to you know put those things in source code. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, this is probably an overkill if you're starting out. But uh, yeah, if you are building out like a you know quite large project, then it's probably a good idea to you know have this structure. 
Cool. And uh, the most interesting one, uh, building like HTTP web service uh, with JSON support. This is like like the minimal version that we can do uh, with the time that we have. Uh, so on the right hand to your, uh, your right hand side, you have the C sharp version. So I have used .NET 6 for this and C sharp 10, and I really love the minimal API concept of .NET. So how I did that was like with the .NET new. Uh, minimal, I think it's called, the new flag. Uh, use that and then you don't have like a lot of boilerplate code that comes with, uh, you know, C-sharp that used to come with C-sharp. So you have your, you know, the uh, the host builder over there and then you get a builder and then, uh, you know, you can have your middleware and all that kind of stuff and then you basically bind or, like, you know, have a delegate passed in over there with hello from .NET. Uh, so, just map that to whatever the route, and then uh, you can say like app dot run. Uh, you you don't have to do this like HTTP localhost eighty eighty one. I just added that so that I can show you from the code. Uh, otherwise, it will pick that up from uh, launch settings JSON. Uh, so how to do that in Go is like you know you have to have like the package main, and let's not worry about the imports yet. So coming down to the main method, uh, this is coming from the, you know, the standard library, so which is going to be like HTTP, so that is this one, net slash HTTP, coming from the standard library package, and uh, you can say like HTTP dot handle func, and then uh, you give the route, and this part is like the handler for that, so it has like a response writer, so you can write to the body of the response, and then uh, you have access to the request as well. So that's one way of doing it, uh, there's like, the concept of multiplexer. Uh, if you are coming from like electrical engineering background, you would know what that is, but it is just a fancy word to say like, you know, routing. Uh, so if you are reading or getting started with building out APIs in Go world, you would come across come across uh, the concept of MUX. That is a fancy way to say like multiplexers. So that's pretty much what it does. So you can, you know, register whatever the handlers that you want uh, for your routes and things like that. As you can see, there's no like in there we have like endpoint routing like dot map get. So you know, uh, that's a get request in here. You wouldn't see that. So if you're going down this route, then you would have to have like a switch case or something like that, and then do a request dot and then whatever the method, and then do a switch on that. And if it is a get, you know, do whatever. Uh, you know, you can have that within the body, but it can, yeah, it's kind of a trade-off. So you can have that if it is a very small API, but if it is going to be like a bigger version of that, you're probably better off using like Gorilla Mux. Uh, that's a really good example of a routing package for Go. Um, and uh, if you're building out like, you know, let's say a single page application combination with, with Go and you have to have like, you know, basic, uh, you know, JWT authentication, and uh, middleware support, logging, and all that kind of stuff. So there are like packages like Jin, it's called. Uh, it's a well, very well-known package, so you don't have to you know, handle all this stuff yourself. Uh, and you get very similar uh, syntax, like you know, uh, in here, like HTTP.handle, you can do like get, and then uh, you know, the route and the handler. Uh, and also, when you start up the server, it has like HTTP.listen and serve, so it spins up a server instance and kind of blocks the current thread until you stop that. 
pretty similar to what happens under the hood uh, with C-sharp as well. And uh, you can also do like TLS. There's a TLS version for this. Like, you know, if you want to terminate TLS at the server side, then you can do that. Uh, I mean, if you have like load balances and things like that, you are better off doing that on that side. So, yeah. And uh, as you can see, there's no server instance in here. And uh, you can pass, uh, you can have like instantiate like your own server instance as well. It is again like a struct. Uh, create like a new instance of the server and then you know you can change the ports, uh, uh, the URLs and you know certificates and all that kind of stuff and then uh, just pass that in you know, where we say like nil. Um, yeah, I mean it's pretty basic. Uh, that's what it does. And if I just jump back into the code, the CD, So uh, let's go into core. Yeah, so just allow that. Uh, let's go to cost. Yeah, so this operation uh, on. Oh, music. Yeah, this is a wrong folder. So let's go back. There you go. So, uh, yeah, pretty simple, nothing crazy in here. Um, then comes the most interesting bit, which is like, you know, adding like JSON support. So, what I did was like, you know, I just scaffolded whatever the minimal API JSON thing that comes with, like the template that comes with .NET. So, I'll just close this and I try to port that to go. So let's open that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, keep that in there and then also open the Go version of that. See if you can remove most of the stuff in here. Yeah, this is like the example that you get. So what I will do is I'll just try to run this. Um, actually, stop that. name yeah it just spits out a JSON and that's that's it so whenever you run this it will just randomly you know change the data so this is like the you know the example that you get from .NET when you scaffold like a minimal API uh, so I think you're familiar with that uh, so this is the .NET code uh, yeah so close everything else you can see that. So what we had earlier as well, create the host builder. And then uh, after that, we have this list of summaries, um, you know, strings, bunch of strings in here. And then we have the endpoint routing, like say like map get this route, and then uh, the delegate like the, you know, handler. And uh, yeah, this is a bit that I was missing, like, you know, using link. Uh, you can do like, you know, dot range, dot select, and then you can just pretty much, you know, instantiate your objects there. And then, uh, yeah, return that. So, and uh, 
we have like a record type in here. Uh, this is a new record type. I think that came out in C sharp nine, right? Uh, not sure whether, yeah. So you, what you can do is you can just pass in uh, parameters in here. It just scaffolds like a struct that we saw earlier. Uh, you can also have like methods in record, so don't get me wrong on that one. Uh, and under the hood, like you can just define an object with a you know single line of code, and then uh, you can utilize that to initialize. Uh, so the, you don't have to have like you know get set like the automatic get set stuff uh, if you if you if you were to use like a class in here. So that's what we are doing here: instantiate the new object, uh, add the you know days and stuff, uh, random. Now, whatever the you know uh, number generator, and then uh, yeah, pick up the you know summaries that we have in here, and then you know just dump that out as uh, JSON. So in order to do that in Go, so in here as you can see, like you know you define like a struct, so you would find that this to be a bit confusing because structs has this concept of like um, annotations. Um, so this is also like a compiler kind of a optimization to say like you know if you have data coming in like you know JSON or XML and such, you can give like whatever the mapping that you want to map onto the name of the you know attribute on the struct. So if you were to have like XML, I think you can do stuff like this and then uh, it will pass this information and tries to bind. So pretty much what uh, uh, JSON.NET would do under the covers as well. So uh, you can define, and you can even come up with your own annotations as well, as uh, far as I know. So even if you have like a new type, you can have the annotations to like reduce the lines of code that you have to ha uh, you know handle such cases. So if you, were to go to the main method, uh, we have you know pretty much similar what we had earlier, like the route name and the handler, and uh, in here we have the summaries that we saw in this uh, C# -sharp example, and there's no link, so have to use the for loop, and uh, you know instantiate the objects uh, as we did in here, and uh, yeah, just append whatever the objects that that we had, and so this one is called json.marshall, which is to say like, you know, json, json serialize in uh, C-sharp world. So this is, this is actually also part of the standard library package. So you can use that to marshal, unmarshal json. Uh, and you would find this to be like interesting why there's like an underscore in here. So I told you earlier when we define functions, you can return multiple return values, right? So if you have a look at the uh, the definition, you would say like, you know, it returns a byte array as well as an error. So that's how it does like the exception handling. Normally in, you know, C-sharp world, you would have like a try-catch block. But in here, if you, are, if you were to handle this, let's say, you know, like a malform JSON or whatever, call that like error, and then it says like, this is not uh, not used. So you would have to do like, you know, if, yeah, error is not null, then uh, handle that. So that's the kind of way they do uh, like error handling uh, in Go, which was uh, kind of interesting. And um, if you are sure that it is not going to break, then you can ignore that with underscore. So 
yeah, that's pretty much it. That's what it does. Uh, pretty simple. Uh, just to wanted to do a, like a small port uh, with the lines of number of lines of code. I mean, minimal APIs are killing it in C sharp. So 30, no, 26 lines. Uh, this one's not too bad, like 36. Yeah, because we don't have link and you know record types and all that kind of stuff. So have to kind of rely on whatever the basic structs or basic stru language constructs that you have with Go. Um, yeah, any questions on this one? Because uh, I'm going to show you like how you can do like a deployment as well, uh, like you know multi-architecture deployment. Uh, if you're comfortable with this, uh, we can probably jump into that. Oh, uh, this one? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's a ORM called GOM. So Go plus ORM. Uh, they use similar stuff like that. So if you have like you know SQL and all the kind of things, I mean, Go standard library has out of the box support for handling SQL. So unless you don't want to use that, you can you know you. Yeah. Uh, you know, resort to something like you're using OR and, and things like that. And you're absolutely right. They have uh, syntax like this. So they have, you, you, as I mentioned earlier, you can roll out your own types as well. So uh, yeah, that's the annotation uh, uh, that you have there. Cool. Uh, if you have, if you don't have any other questions, um, can actually show, yeah, the other uh, bit, which is say multi arch deployments. Close everything else. Okay. Stop the service. So Go has like out of the box uh, support for building multi-platform, like multi-architecture applications. So what I mean by that is, for example, let's say you have, uh, let's say a cluster of, I don't know, Linux uh, you know, servers or you know, pods and things like that. Uh, you can compile your application you know, targeting that. If you have like Windows containers or whatever, you can target that. So what I mean by that is, let's say for example, we jump into this folder. Uh, let's say we do a go build of uh, main.go. Yeah, as you can see, it created like a binary. So if I open up the finder, so it's like 6.1 MB with all the you know bells and whistles uh, with that. So you can just deploy this uh, wherever you want. But the caveat is you have to make sure that it is built for the correct uh, operating system as well as the architecture. So by default, Go sets these things up depending on your local environment. So uh, how to um, find that out is like you can use Go tool dist list. So these are the supported you know platforms that comes with Go, like you know Android 386, uh, um, sorry AMD 64. Um, yeah, you can do. Yeah, you can do Wasm, 
uh, just like JavaScript bindings. Yeah, there's like a whole bunch of, oh yeah, there you go, JS, WASM, uh, iOS, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, most of the things probably won't work because I'm on Mac Darwin kind of environment and yeah, NetBSD, OpenBSD, I don't, I don't Plan 9, I think it's IBM or something. I don't even know. Uh, I'm pretty surprised that Solaris is still there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Windows. Uh, yeah, uh, what I can show you is, uh, let's say we do like Go ENV. Um, actually, before that, I'll just run Go ENV and show you what kind of flags that it sets when it installs Go. So Go architecture, as you can see in here, like my ones is set to AMD64 because it's a 64-bit system, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. This is the Go path I told you. So in previous days, you have to have your application code, you know, under this folder. No longer, no, it's, it's not the case now because you have modules. Uh, Go private, this is what I told you about, like, you know, if you want to grab packages from uh, private repositories. Uh, proxies, um, Go root is where you have your, you know, the original Go SDK. Um, CSX Clang, I, I mean, I think if you want to compile it with C++ bindings or something, you can do uh, with, you know, the, the Clang compiler and things like that. So C, Go, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's another one, so Go ENV. This is pronounced as Goose. Uh, I'm actually not kidding. So Goose and Go Arc. So uh, I'm not sure whether that is visible. Ah, yeah, there you go. So my one is set to Darwin because I'm on a Mac system and uh, you can have like Linux, Windows and things like that. So what we are going to do is we, we are going to change that and compile the application and uh, see what we get out of that. So, so clear that out. So I already have that typed in here. So Linux, uh, rather than Linux, let's say Windows. Yeah, so that worked, and as you can see, it already created like an exe in here, which is kind of, yeah, it is good, I'd say. And uh, the thing with this is like, you know, we use Kubernetes heavily, and we have like you know, a lot of clusters and things like that. Uh, even for my, you know, personal projects and things like that, I have like a Raspberry Pi cluster, which I have used uh, to, you know, test different things. So what I can do is actually, you know, during my normal development time, I just target it for Linux, and even during deployment time, time I just you know uh, deploy that there. And if you want to target like ARM uh, kind of environment, like you know Raspberry Pis and things like that, you can pretty easily do that. I, I can actually show that to you uh, because that's why I have created this Docker file uh, kind of to automate that process. Um, yeah, as you can see, like you know, it just creates like a binary file. Uh, that you can just deploy and run. So the binary file that got created for me is probably gonna work only on Mac systems because my uh, operating system settings like the Goose uh, variable was set to Darwin. And um, if I just say like, you know, Linux, then uh, yeah, you can just run, just copy that over and you can just run it on Linux machine. Um, so if I just go back to the file system, yeah, that's the exe of that. Right, so I'll just remove everything else. Uh, yep. Okay, so the code is, uh, you know, what we saw earlier as well, this is like that, uh, you know, the HTTP server. 
um, that we saw earlier. And what I have done here is like I have created like a multi-stage Docker file. Um, if you're not familiar with multi-stage, what we are gonna do is like, you know, we just build the application during the build time using the Golang latest uh, image. Uh, because what, the reason why we are doing that is it has all the, you know, SDKs and things like that installed. So you don't have to worry about, you know, installing those things. And you can also target like a specific version of Go uh, after the colon where I say like latest. Um, and I am using like these uh, build time arguments in Docker. Uh, so I can just actually target, uh, like, you know, inject variables into the Docker uh, file when I'm building that. Uh, and then rest of the stuff is like, you know, the work dir copy main.go, just, you know, copy whatever the uh, main.go that we have into the, you know, container and then set the target OS uh, that we did earlier as well and the target architecture and build the uh, main.go uh, application. So ultimately it will spit out like a, you know, binary file. And then what we are gonna do is like create a, another, uh, you know, container. So we don't need anything else in the Golang kind of the image. So we can actually create like very lean images uh, with the multi-stage concept. So uh, I'm actually using like Debian in here and uh, WorkDIR is, you know, going to be like just set home or something and then copy whatever the artifacts that we got from the previous one and copy them into the current container and then uh, just entry point is main, just run that and expose port 8080. So if we are to do this, uh, like run this, uh, I actually have the code, uh, yeah, there you go. Just preview that so that I don't have to type anything. Yeah, that's gonna take a bit of time, I guess. Uh, it's still downloading Debian and things like that. So one thing that I noticed was because we are building like an API, you won't probably be able to run this in a very lean container like Alpine Linux or Scratch because it doesn't have like networking capabilities. So that's why I'm targeting Debian here. Uh, but if you have like a CLI application, console application, then of course you can use uh, like a pretty bare bones uh, image. Uh, yeah, my internet connection seems to be, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be working, but uh, yeah, I actually have this up and running in a GitHub action and I'll show you what happens there. So what we can do here is when we build the Docker image, we can pass in like these build arguments like the target OS Linux and uh, target architecture AMD64 and things like that. And then uh, you can just run the container. I think I already had this. Let me see if I can run that and yeah, okay. I think that should work. Yeah, so now this is running from the container. Uh, if I just stop that just to verify it's not something else. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so that ran from the container because we bound the port 8080 of the host to the container. So once that's running. So another interesting bit is the uh, GitHub action. So if you want to create like, you know, multiple builds for your application and, you know, publish the images to your GCR or ACR or whatever the image repository that you're using, 
uh, I can show you that by using uh, the build strategies. Uh, see if I can. Cool. Now that one worked. Uh, by the way, everything that I showed you is uh, on this repository, github.com slash sahansaya slash adnag-go. Um, so here we have like a, you know, Docker image build. And what I'm trying to do here is I'll see if I can. I have this uh, like a build matrix setup. So it will run my steps. Uh, for all the combinations that we define here. So let's say, you know, Linux, Windows, Darwin, whatever, uh, as long as Docker can build that, uh, you can define those operating systems and then, you know, pass those as uh, variables uh, into the Docker build. So that's what I'm doing here. So once you run that, so basically we are using the same Docker file and I'm using buildx because I'm doing like an ARM version of my uh, web service. So for that, you have to use like a, I think it's called cross compilation or cross build in Docker. So you have to use the build X thing, but it's pretty easy to do that with GitHub actions. So all you have to do is, you know, add this uh, uh, action into your workflow. And then after that, you can just say like Docker build and uh, pass in the values. And then, uh, so we are referring to this matrix that we defined over here and you can have like multiple architectures and multiple operating systems. So once that's run, you will have something like this. So like different builds uh, for like different versions of your application. Uh, so this is kind of the setup that I have at home. Uh, whenever I want to debug something, I just, uh, you know, do a multi-architecture build. Uh, I have like a, you know, Kubernetes cluster in a Raspberry Pi. Um, set up so it doesn't run uh, with AMD64 uh, because it's still on ARM. And uh, so I use the same concept, just uh, build that out and uh, deploy that into my containers and uh, I can just test that uh, from my setup. So yeah, that's actually uh, what I wanted to show you there. I uh, wanted to show you like it has out of the box support for like, you know, doing multi-architecture builds uh, with Go. Yeah, more cool stuff that's built with Go, Go routines, as I told you earlier, like this one. Um, over here, you can like really easily, like you can spin up multiple threads and things like that. And Go has this concept of channels. You can, you know, communicate between different threads. Uh, so that's what actually Go is known for. Like it's very powerful uh, when it comes to Go routines. And Go for JS, it is more like a, not a compiler, but a transpiler. So how we did that with the, you know, Go operating system equals, like change the operating system architecture and things like that. Go.js has bindings to the DOM and you can just write, you know, your Go application as you would normally, you know, would do. And then uh, it gets compiled into like JavaScript. So that's what Go4.js does. And there's like, you know, whole bunch of examples and uh, things like that in that repository. Uh, if you have a look like, you know, using React, view. Uh, you can just write your code in Go and then uh, that gets compiled into, yeah, JavaScript and things. So what they have done is like they have created like a separate compiler and that I think that gets injected into a current compiler. So that gets added as a new target. Uh, so that's that. And if you're into like machine learning stuff, uh, it's not as rich as Python's ecosystem for machine learning. Uh, so if you're using NumPy and things like that, there's GoNum. Uh, 
but other than that, I haven't seen that many like good packages. Probably there's gonna be like ports of TensorFlow because it's backed by Google, probably in the future. Um, yeah, other than that, I haven't seen that much of support when it comes to machine learning and things like that. Uh, TinyGo is a, a WASM runtime, so you can actually write your code and you know just compile that into WASM. Uh, something that we saw in our previous talk uh, for Blazor, something that you know, Microsoft also does already with Blazor, uh, Blazor client side. Uh, so you can do stuff like that with Go as well, which is like a trimmed down version of Go, what Go can do. So uh, yeah, because it will anyway run in the WASM environment like the sandbox. Um, yeah, there's a like, whole bunch of other cool stuff, but uh, that's that, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hope that this brings up a lot of memories. <laughs> uh, there's uh, like the resources and things like that. Uh, yeah, uh, just see if I can quickly show you if we can apply the learnings uh, uh, that we saw in this presentation and to go to a repo like Docker and see if you can read the source code there. Uh, it's pretty simple, but if it loads, see see how it go. Uh, yeah, Google works, but yeah. Yeah, I'll let it run and uh, what else do we have? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in. <laughs> Sorry about all the technical difficulty, difficulties that we had. Uh, yeah, ultimately we had a setup uh, that worked for us. So yeah, any questions or any feedback or anything, I'm you know, happy to hear. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a fantastic talk. Whoa, it's still <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot. Oh, it's all loaded up. <laughs> See if we can read the Docker CLI code. Uh, okay. Okay. So this is the Docker CLI. Yeah, like you know, just open up a terminal, and when you say like Docker, whatever the command. So that's what uh, this does. Uh, See if we can find compose config. It's actually different, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, there you go. So the CMD folder that I told you about earlier, so that's where you would normally put your, the endpoints or the executables uh, into your application. So if you go into Docker, go. So starting from the top, so that's package main, right? So that has to be there if, if you have an entry point into your application. So there has to be a main method as well, right? So let's say func main, there you go. So that's the entry point. As you can see, you know, it just, you know, initializes uh, like a new command builder, something like that. And then uh, as you can see, like the error handling, as you might have already guessed it. So you have to kind of, you know, handle that on your own. There's no exception handling or things like that. So just a good old if else, uh, not else, just if. And then uh, if something breaks, just you know dot do or dot exit 
And then uh, LogRS is like a logging uh, library for Go. And uh, it is like a structured logging library. Even I have used that because it's super awesome. Uh, depending on your environment, you can uh, dial, dial down, dial up uh, different log, log levels uh, in your application. So that's why they're using that. And uh, yeah, everything else is, you know, like the short version of, you know, initializing a variable and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then uh, see if what we have in here. So named upper CLI is just a function. And then you can pass in like, so this is like a notation to say like, you know, you can pass in multiple variables rather than saying this and that and all that kind of stuff. So you pass in like the options into that. And then here you can see like a, you know, initialization of a struct. Uh, yeah, as you can see, it's, it's kind of consistent. Uh, there's no magic going on um, in here. Bunch of if-else. As I told you earlier, like it has a very low level of syntactic sugar when compared to C sharp. Uh, that's why you would initially find it to be a bit terse. Um, but I mean, it's easy to read at least. So there's no magic going on. Just, you know, initializing stuff, checking whether there are errors or not, setting certain things up and uh, things like that. Um, yeah, now you know how to read the Docker source code as well. Uh, cool. That's pretty much it. I hope you learned a thing or two from this. I hope it is not overwhelming. I know we had a lot of content over there. It's kind of dense. Normally, I have seen people doing these kind of things like one or two day workshops. Uh, but I try to give as much as possible out of this presentation. So yeah, thank, thank you for listening in. <laughs>